Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the KISS concept as it applies to automation. You should not overcomplicate this. Pick out some things that are simple. Get started. Get people excited about it. Uh, Don't overthink it. Don't start from scratch to remake Pentagon AI policy. What we ought to be doing is saying, let's say 80% of what we're talking about is like any other technology we've ever dealt with. Maybe it's 90%. Now, what does that extra 10% do? And the people savings from RPA is automatic. It's been a great thing to help us take care of the rote procedures, the clerical, the admin, such that we don't have to waste our uh, human capital on such mundane tasks. It's Wednesday, June 22nd, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Three network security projects will get a total of nearly $95 million from the Technology Modernization Fund. The Agriculture Department will get $64 million for its USDA net modernization. The Homeland Security Department gets almost $27 million to upgrade the Homeland Security Information Network. The Federal Trade Commission gets almost $4 million for a Security Operations Center as a Service project. The White House has a candidate to become the next head of the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the Office of Management and Budget. Arthi Prabhakar led DARPA from 2012 to 2017. She was director of NIST in the Clinton administration. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The intersection of identity management and cyber will be in focus at the OctaGov Identity Summit 2022. Government and industry leaders convene at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City tomorrow. You can find a link to learn more and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. That USDA net project that got $64 million from the TMF is the second largest award ever from the fund. The login.gov project at the General Services Administration got $187 million. Gerard Bedoric is former chief financial officer at GSA, founder of the federal RPA community of practice. Gerard, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What do you think the, uh, the essential pieces are of a winning proposal to the TMF, like login.gov, like USDA.net, uh, and the others that we saw yesterday? Welcome. Yeah, I um, thank you, Francis. Good to be here. Um, one of the things that uh, I think is very uh, important or is a big factor in these proposals is something that will benefit all of government. So when you look at login.gov, that's exactly what that is. Uh, and and if, if for one agency to do that and try to price it and charge the early adopters uh, a very high price to cover their costs will not work. So, so that's a terrific example of something that would not happen very easily without TMF uh, funding. So, so that's, that's uh, those types of projects, I think, are, are the most beneficial for the TMF. What's your sense of the impact that it's having across government in the way that you just described it? Because you can go down the list, as I did just this morning, and look at the individual agencies that the TMF is impacting, and it's, it's very impactful. What's your sense of what that looks like, though, more horizontally across government, Gerard? Yeah, I, um, you know, it, it's the, the federal government has, has a problem figuring out where they can reduce spending to fund incremental spending. And, and CIOs, uh, in my mind, are, uh, uh, have a lot of uh, 
opportunities to have something go wrong. So that they're very conservative. So this this opportunity to to provide more funding incrementally to them and to have a, a, a more limited payback in the past is 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 a is a huge opportunity because that uh, that gets them. Uh, this extra bandwidth to uh, to make a difference. Now, I'll just tell you, you know, one question to ask is, is the TMF has been out there for a while. Uh, what have you done with the projects that have already been implemented? And and I'll tell you, one of the things that you, uh, that's tough from a CFO perspective is when you see a proposal and, 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 the the responses will save 50 million and, and the 50 million is instead of spending 150 million more i'm only going to ask for 100 million right so it's avoided cost and, and that that is uh you know that 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 is a tough one to, to really dig into so to help me understand the difference between those two concepts and and the way that a cfo looks at them because when whenever the gao report on um fragmentation duplication comes out every year they always talk about um like cost avoidance, spending avoidance, as opposed to cost savings, and kind of combine those two. Is that really the right way to look at it from a financial point of view, Gerard? Uh, It's, uh, it is and it isn't, right? So, so cost avoidance is hard to predict, because, um, you know, the the argument that your costs will go up 150 million is, um, you you know, you're never sure if that is going to happen. So the real um, you know, I, I think the real uh, way you want to look at this is can you reduce your cost of, uh, today to do something or can you provide a more value added uh, service to uh, citizens or employees? Um, I want to go back to the TMF and I wonder what that collaboration looked like when putting these proposals together, because it strikes me that to the point of this issue of cost avoidance versus savings and so on, that partnership is tremendously important to somebody who is trying to an agency that's trying to get this money and make an impact. It, it, it is very important. And, um, you know, it's, the, as I said before, the CIOs in government have a lot of things going on. They're the operational leaders, but, but in, in many uh, software companies, you see the CTO uh, position being the real position where they're thinking about how to do things differently. At, at GSA, uh, our TMF proposals were coming out of the, the uh, technology transformation service. So that was TTS. And, and that was a, a very strong partnership uh, with the CFO office because uh, there were, uh, uh, you know, we, we, we push them on cost. Want to understand what the benefits are? What we actually got involved in how they would price the services to other agencies, right? And and just like you're you're selling a product in the commercial world, you may not be able to price it at a level that covers all your costs right away. But over time, you need to get there. So so all of that had had to come together, and uh, it was uh, uh, the discussions. Uh, uh, our teams worked together and. Uh, uh, the CFO obviously needs to work together with with the leaders of the business units to think about what is going to have the most impact and, and how it delivers value and how to quantify that uh, uh, for the TMF uh, business case. I want to shift gears. I saw you last week at uh, our uh, UiPath Summit on RPA, and you moderated a panel there with two leaders from government who are still in and are doing work with RPA every day. What's your sense as somebody who's been involved with it from the very beginning, one of the original drivers of using RPA in government, of how well 
the federal government as a whole is leveraging the opportunity that it has with automation. So, uh, Francis, I would say it's hugely varied, right? The, the, the good news is, is uh, RPA and automation is out there. Business owners are aware of it. Uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm, but the actual results across agencies differs uh, broadly. And, and you have some agencies that have lots of automations, lots of capacity freed up, and others that are still trying to uh, trying to get started. But but it, it's got, um, it, if, if you think of, of, of RPA and automation as an IT project, then it's gonna go on the list with all the other IT projects the CIO has, and uh, they have to prioritize it. But, but if you can make this something uh, that the business owners uh, or business functions can manage and deliver with support uh, from the IT organizations, the IT organization is enabler, that that will uh, that will have a huge uh, huge impact, and and I think agencies are are a different uh, are looking at this in different ways. Some some of them look at look at it as an IT project, totally managed by the IT organization. Others uh, have an IT organization that enables the business owners, and when the business owners start to see the benefit and how it is helping them, then then when they get excited about it, then uh, then you can really accelerate. So that's occurred in some. Uh, agencies but not know one of my takeaways from your panel was the business owners that approach this in a positive way and that are enthusiastic about it are also thinking about it it seems to me as an employee engagement tool like it's a positive a lot of the discussion around automation at the beginning was that the employees would be afraid that the bots were going to come and take their jobs and for the eight for the organizations that are implementing it well it seems to me exactly the opposite is the case uh, exactly. Once you, uh, when I think about this, a new technology like this, uh, I think about a sales and marketing uh, component, a business development component, and then the actual automation factory that builds the automation. So uh, I knew uh, at, at GSA when uh, employees were coming up to me and our automation team and saying, hey, I have an idea for an automation. Uh, can you do this? And, and, and sometimes it was just automating uh, part of of their job, which you wouldn't do, you're looking for that that scale. But but you know you you you've uh, won people over when when they are soliciting you uh, and telling you I, I have an idea for uh, an automation. How do you advise somebody to prioritize all of the possibilities? Because it sounded like we're still at the very beginning of maximizing the potential of automation. So if there's a whole laundry list of possibilities. How does one go about deciding which are the ones to attack first? Is it really just which one's going to save the most money or the most work, or is there another way to think about it? Uh, I mean, there there is a balance, and, and and the first thing I would say is don't overthink it. Right? If you need to do an ROI and and all this analysis, uh, it's not going to work. When you have a new technology, it's it's learn how to do it, learn how to get done. So the factors that that I cared about was was don't start off with something that's very complex, it'll take a year and a half to build, right? Uh, start simple, show the benefit. Uh, you can have a, a basic threshold that, that, and the one that I had in place when we started was 2000 hours of annualized capacity for automation. So, so, so by, by having that, that threshold and, uh, and pushing the, the team to deliver Roughly an automation a week is, is what we strive for. Uh, you know, I think you're you're, you're going to get things uh, done and have an impact. And certainly, uh, if it's less than two thousand hours, but this is the first one that Francis Rose is going to do, I might say, hey, let's let's uh, let's go ahead and do it and and show uh, 
show what it can do for that organization. So, so that, that's roughly what, what it would be, but you cannot, you should not overcomplicate this, pick out some things that are simple, get started, get people excited about it. Uh, don't overthink it. Gerard Bedoric, great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thank you. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about the TMF Awards in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Never trust, always verify is the essence of zero trust. If you want to secure your organization, you need to verify more than just users. You also need to secure devices. Tanium can help you gain clarity and control across all endpoints to secure your perimeter. Visit tanium.com federal to learn more. One of the core policies in the Defense Department artificial intelligence realm is up for review. The department's revising a policy on autonomy in weapons systems. Lieutenant General Jack Shanahan, U.S. Air Force retired, is former director of the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. Uh, Jack, welcome. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much for coming on. What is What does DOD Directive 3000.09 Autonomy in Weapons Systems say for the, the information of people who haven't actually read it like you have. Welcome, sir. Well, thanks, Francis. Thanks again for having me back on. I always enjoy these conversations. Uh, I know you had Greg Allen on there recently, and Greg wrote what I think is the defining piece about 3000.09, and the need maybe for some specific areas to update uh, because OSD policy, Office of Secretary of Defense Policy, has said in a recent interview that they're going to revise this after its 10 years life sort of has expired. It's up for review. But it's called Autonomy and Weapon Systems. And, and, and so if you, if you read the title, you realize one thing right off the bat. It is not an artificial intelligence document. It was written really before there was any AI to speak of that was in the field in the Department of Defense. It's been useful. It's been extremely useful because you can fit AI under the existing autonomy and weapon systems. I think Greg's point, a point in which he and I have had many discussions on this, it will be necessary over time to revise it to reflect more AI-enabled capabilities. So as it stands right now, and, and Greg talks at length about this, as it stands right now, the document is designed to say, if the department wants to feel an autonomous weapon system, a system that can operate with some level of human intervention all the way to no level of human intervention. Here is the process by which you must proceed to get approval for that. And there are multiple layers. It's fairly restrictive how to do it, but it does lay out a process to do that. And I would say this is the only document I know of worldwide, and maybe someone correct, can correct me on this, the only document that is unclassified and publicly releasable in any military that describes autonomy in weapon systems. And I think, I think it's served very well, but it is time to be updated. All right. Greg talked at length about his ideas as your former colleague at the Jake uh, about how to do that. And that conversation and a link to Greg's work is in the archives, thedailyscooppodcast.com. What I noted from what you just described there, Jack, is if the department wants to field an autonomous weapon. Well, the department wants to field autonomous weapons now. There's no question about that, and everybody knows it. What, what does that revision then look like to not just make it clear what the department stands for regarding autonomous weapons in 2022, but 2025 and 2030 and 2040? This one lasted 10 years, so I assume they're not going to go back and revise this every couple of years. 
Yeah, there, this is this is really going to be the most important revision. This this next one because now we understand better what some of these AI enabled capabilities could look like. And what Greg's point was very important point says there needs to be a little bit more of a definition there. What do we really mean by AI enabled systems? I love his example of let's say the F thirty five is going to use AI for solely its communications and navigation system. Do we consider the entire F thirty five an AI enabled weapon system? Perhaps not. It really is a matter of degree. And the second, and I think extraordinarily important point is these machine learning capabilities are designed to be self-learning. They're still pretty rudimentary. We've talked about this before on the show. You know, it's still a little bit brittle in some cases, many cases. But what if we start getting advanced capabilities that really do learn on their own? This new revision has to take that into account to be able to set the parameters for if it's a very sophisticated advanced learning system, what does that mean? Do humans get taken out of the loop to the extent that, let's say, policy leaders no longer have a say in the employment of force? That's going to concern some people. So that has to be laid out in, in the document. And so you've gotten to really what the essence of this conversation is about, Jack. The essence of the conversation is about when are we comfortable as a nation, as a defense department, and as individual practitioners of war with the computer, the algorithm pushing the button. That's really what this boils down to, isn't it, Jack? That is what it boils down to, Francis. You said it well, and, and I would add a word that I keep coming back to in every conversation I have within the United States, but also in some of these international forums I'm involved in, it's the issue of trust. Do we trust that system? And, and I tell you, I think if you if you discuss with any commander in any service, in any operational environment, they will have some reluctance to be fully autonomous to the point where a system is selecting targets and making targeting decisions and releasing weapons all by itself. So we can expect a heavily autonomous system Department of Defense over the next decade. I think what we're being more cautious about this element of trust is how far do we go with that? Because commanders want a say when it comes to taking human lives, that is the most critical of all decisions. So it really, we really have to think more about okay, how far are we willing to go with this in terms of how, how much can we trust the system, the black box, as it were. You've mentioned a couple of times the international implications of this. And when it comes to that issue of trust, Pretty much every commander, as you just referenced, in any service and in any operational environment, talks about allies and partners and the way that the, that his or her unit, command, whatever, interacts with allies and partners. What's important about this particular policy and the way that it fr is framed eventually, the way that it eventually is revised to maintain that level of trust with the allies and partners of the United States? That's an excellent point, because we can't expect to just go out there and say, this is the United States way. It's the only way. If we're talking about trust, it is trust with our allies and partners, not just the United States making these sort of unilateral decisions. We always do what's in our national best interest. We all accept that. But when it comes to fielding of autonomous weapon systems, this is a dialogue because what we're coming down to, and it's a little bit of what we've talked about before as well, it's sort of a, a, a contest in the future between what we would call liberal democratic values and sort of the authoritarian view of the world, where maybe they're not taking the same steps that we're talking about here. If we want to succeed in that environment, in that competition, it's us and allies and partners having a conversation that is not just a two-way conversation, it's a multi-directional multi conversation, because they all have different concerns about the extent of autonomy in some of these weapon systems and where the human is in the decision-making process. So it's, it's critical that they're, they're truly partners in this, not just sort of an adjunct to the United States making its own decisions. 
decisions. Uh, another excellent observation you make there, Jack, is the observation that it's essentially it's an us versus them. And the them in the two cases of the current world landscape are uh, authoritarian uh, governments and authoritarian militaries. They will have no problem at all having the robot, the algo, the machine push the button. I, there's no reason at least to believe that there's no evidence that we've seen that they would have any problem with that. What does that mean for us as a potential adversary of, uh, of, of a military operating in that way to maybe not handicap ours? Maybe we're having the wrong dialogue about does the robot push the button or not? And maybe it, is, it has to be much more nuanced than that. No, it does. And so, so to your very point there, let's say it's electronic warfare or cyber. I don't think anybody that, that I know of in the military is, is too concerned about that being an autonomous uh, decision-making process and you know, action, counteraction, response, counter-response. This is how we fought wars forever, right? Adversary does something, we react to it, they react to our reaction. So cyber electronic warfare are two that immediately come to mind that I think we, we will have a future of, of sort of algorithmic warfare responding to each other. So it's a matter of degree and there is some nuance involved here. In these international dialogues that, that, that I'm taking part Pardon. What I'm trying to convince uh, other countries that may not have the same view that we have is it's in your best interest to do this right, because a failure for one is a failure for all. And the entire AI future of the, of the global community could be set back by somebody doing something really dumb or stupid or, or in the tragic case of killing innocent civilians and collateral damage. So I'm trying to convince people it's in your own best interest to be serious about this so that we don't have sort of these, these agents of, of destruction out doing their thing. But uh, I agree with your, your key point is uh, what I fear is we are going to be, as we always are, a little bit more cautious and a little bit more restrictive until we prove that these systems can work as advertised. So you use the phrase how we fought wars forever. And I wonder if maybe people like me in particular, and I don't know, maybe it's happening in the, the NETSEC community more broadly, are kind of falling for the shiny object syndrome. And we're thinking about artificial intelligence as this new thing. And it's, and we've had new things in war fighting for 5,000 years. And this is it, maybe we're falling into that syndrome of we have to think about this completely differently when we shouldn't think about it completely differently. We should think about this as a new tool in the arsenal of war fighting and not try to maybe overthink it, Jack. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. We have a tendency to do what you just described, which is focus on the bright, shiny object. What we ought to be doing is saying, let's say 80% of what we're talking about is like any other technology we've ever dealt with. Maybe it's 90%. Now, what does that extra 10% do? That's what we should be focused on. If, if I have a self-learning system that could be engaging autonomously, okay, that is different than the other, other technologies we've had in the past, but is it entirely different or not? What you just said is a conversation I just had within the last week is, why are we talking so much about the ethical, safe, and responsible use of these systems? Aren't we doing that already with every other system we've ever, ever developed? And the answer is yes, we do in the form of rules of engagement or special instructions or parameters that are put on combat operations. That's not going to change what will change perhaps. I think we all see that there will be some serious differences in this idea of a self-learning system. And if it's truly fully autonomous, okay, let's focus on that part of it. But let's not neglect the rest 
rest of this, which is what we've done in combat as long as we've had a military in the United States. So conceptually, then, when we go back to looking at how to potentially revise DOD Directive 3000.09, that means that we think about it maybe the opposite of the way that we would have thought about it. Instead of sitting down and thinking, how do we revise this policy based on um, what has changed in the autonomy of weapon systems over the last 10 years since the last revision, maybe we think it, maybe it's like a, a starting from scratch and, and think about how we generally make policy toward war fighting and then apply it from larger to smaller regarding uh, autonomy and systems. No, I agree. And, and I'm, one of the efforts I'm involved in through the IEEE Safety and Assurance, one of the subcommittees is on this very subject of let's start with, let's say an autonomous system made a, made a decision to, to fire a weapon, underwater vehicle, whatever you want to call it. We work all the way back to the weapon design, the policy approval process and all that. Most of that will look like every other decision we've ever used to employ some kind of technology in combat. Let's really focus on what makes that different. And that's where we should be expending all of our intellectual capital to say, I get the rest of that. But this 10%, let's say, you know, plus or minus a few percent is where we need to spend most of our time and then run that through the ringer, do test and evaluation, do experimentation, do war games, do do policy roundtables where people sit around and say, hey, what about this weapon system? Should we deploy it? Should we not? What risks are we taking? What risk am I buying? Who's buying the risk? Who trusts it? Who doesn't trust it? Those are the things we could, we could be spending a lot of valuable time thinking about. You're very generous with your time. I have one quick question before I let you go, Jack. Is there a worry ever about that kind of open dialogue happening when our adversaries don't have that kind of open dialogue? Do we tip our hands potentially too much? What's the right balance? Well, so it comes down to uh, how is the United States viewed as a responsible actor on the world stage? Are we willing to take a little more risk at times to say this is the way we have done it? This is the way we always do it. We make mistakes, right? The United States has not always done everything in, in the most pristine manner, manner possible in combat operations, but we strive to do the right thing. We strive to be lawful and responsible and ethical, and sometimes our adversaries will not be. That doesn't mean we have to do a race to the bottom and, and, and act in the same way that they're acting, it's to elevate them to say, this is good for, for humanity writ large. And there may be times where we might be a little bit disadvantaged by that approach, but I'd rather take that because of who we are as, as, a, as a country, as, as a, our liberal democratic values with our allies and partners. It's worth the extra effort, in my opinion, not to slow us down, which I think is a subtext of what you're just asking. It's to move as, as fast as we like to move while still doing the necessary diligence on this other piece. That's a little piece of what I'm asking. I also just worry that um, an adversary knows what we will and won't do. They know yeah, where we fair. draw the line. And if they're willing to go beyond that line, that potentially disadvantages us. That's right. That's uh, that. That's an important one. And that's something that we have to work out at the policy and at the military sort of strategic, tactical and operational level to, to understand what those barriers might be. Jack, I could just go on and on. It's great to have you on the program. Thanks very much. Thanks, Francis. As always, good talking with you. You can read more about the policy revision Jack talked about in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The 13th year of Fed Talks launches August 24th. High-level leaders in government, industry, and academia will offer lightning talks, keynotes, and fireside chats. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. 
Automation is saving money and time at the Patent and Trademark Office. That office's chief information officer says power users helped him gain momentum for automation projects. Jamie Holcomb is the CIO at the Patent and Trademark Office. At the UiPath Together Summit, FedScoop hosted, I asked him his three priorities as CIO. Cyber, resiliency, and moving to the cloud. Mm-hmm. What's resiliency mean to you? I love it. The ability for resiliency is to have a plan, to have continuity of operations. And it's near and dear to everybody's military background. I mean, what you gonna do now, Airborne? Mm -hmm. I remember that right. you know, very well. And the fact is, is that you have to have plans and contingencies for almost any type of chaotic environment. So you talked about the fact that the tools that you saw people using were antiquated. What were some of those methodologies that you needed to change? I think automation probably has a little bit to do with it, I'm guessing. A lot to do with it, yeah. The fact of the matter is you gotta know where you are mm -hmm. before you can figure out where you're gonna be. You have to have that vision, and then you gotta figure out a path to get there. Very simple, right? Mm -hmm. So the first thing we did was we stabilized the environment. We uh, got rid of our technical debt, and that's not an easy thing to do. And you can't get rid of all of it. As soon as you deploy something, it becomes technical debt. Right. I mean, the decisions you make in your design have an effect on your deployment. So you have to accept some of those things and realize that there's an O&M component to all deployments. Mm -hmm. So as long as you put that in your evergreen environment, then you can keep going along the way and have those supportable um, infrastructure as well as the applications. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is, there were so many things that were out of date, and there was a hope that you would just replace them with the new. But hope is not a plan. Yeah. You've really got to do it. So one of the things that I ask every technology person, not just CIO in government, when it comes to automation is, how did you manage through explaining to the workforce the way you've been doing it is maybe not, we have better opportunities for you, and this will not, especially when it comes to automation, this will not impact your job. We still need you. We just want you to do different things. How did you manage through that, Jamie? That's a real art. And I will say it's the art of the deal because one of the first things that you have to realize, there's three things to do any type of operations, people, process, and tools. Mm -hmm. So if the people are not behind you, the people are the number one biggest thing. I say mission first, but people always. So they had to know that I wasn't in there looking for a reduction in force. Mm -hmm. Because if people have that, all they're doing is protecting their own little rice bowls. So instead of that, we said, look, there's no reduction in force planned. We're just gonna shift the work from this to that. Mm -hmm. And what was that? The hierarchy in the government is very tough. The, bureauc the bureaucracy and the levels. I noticed that from myself through the reporting structure down to the tactical line, there were seven levels. So what I did was I reduced it to four. Mm -hmm. So from me down to the tactical line now, there's four. And in doing that, a lot of people now have to roll up their sleeves and actually do work instead of checking on the work of somebody else and then yeah. checking on the checking. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of waste and inefficiency. And that's part of bringing the commercial atmosphere in saying, look, you can have a matrix model. And then what we did was we changed the culture and in changing the culture, I actually eliminated the program office. Oh my God, can you imagine a government agency that eliminated the program management office? We did it, and we moved to product management. So we took over 158 different projects, which always started and stopped, and there was all this financial 
uh, turmoil, and we made 30 different products across four product lines. You have patents, trademarks, you have back office business, and you have the IT infrastructure. And each of them had about eight products. The biggest change was the fact that IT wasn't in charge. The product owners were actually from the business units. And that makes a big difference when you have an IT project or an IT uh, focus on the applications. What happens is now the business owner has to make those trade-offs with the advice and the guidance from the IT, not only the developers, but also the cyber guys, and also putting everything in that design and making those customer experience trade-offs. Mm -hmm. So that's where the big change in culture came. How did you use that culture change to analyze the tasks that people were doing and apply at least the potential of automation to be able to move those people to better work? As I Low said, value to high value work is a term that course, we've heard many times. Of course. As I said before, if you don't measure it, mm -hmm. you can't manage it. Yeah. So the fact of the matter is you have to get better, cheaper, and faster. The thing is the government always forgets about the cheaper and faster part. So it's always, oh, I need more people, I need more money. No, you don't. You need to decide what you're going to do with what you got. Mm -hmm. So live within your means. And it's so easy to think about, but it's so hard to do because everything's a priority. And remember, if everything's a priority, nothing's a priority. Mm -hmm. So you have to actually have one, two, and three. And as you asked me before, number one is cybersecurity. We have to keep the intellectual property secure within our grasp. Number two, resiliency. If something goes out, we have to come back online. Mm -hmm. There was one reason I think I was brought on board, and that was the PTO actually experienced an 11-day outage where the examiners, 9,000 examiners, guys with... Uh, lawyer degrees, engineering degrees, et cetera, were sitting around twiddling their thumbs because the systems were down. Mm. That's unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Think about the tens of millions of dollars that were wasted. Mm -hmm. So just having that resilient, the ability for resiliency is huge. And then of course, moving to the cloud, getting the better tools in the hands of the examiners so they can do things better, cheaper, and faster. You uh, are leveraging something, a term, uh, the term for it is augmented intelligence. What's that mean? And give me an example of how, what difference it's making in the way that you do business. Thanks, yeah. First off, uh, my opinions are mine and mine alone. They're not shared by the US government. All right, so <laughs> I don't think that there's any such thing as general artificial intelligence, right? Arnold Schwarzenegger's not gonna come down from the sky as Terminator. He's not gonna take over the world. Skynet is not around. And why do I think that? I've actually, am a developer. I'm a software engineer by trade. I mean, I was the first graduate in computer science from West Point. And that doesn't say a lot because man, think about how, you know, anyway. That was just a few years ago. Yeah, exactly. That wasn't very long ago. <laughs> so the fact of the matter is, it's not artificial intelligence, it's augmented intelligence. And that's also bringing the um, examiners along with you for the ride because it's not replacing their work. It's augmenting their work. In fact, it's shown because what we did was they, we included in the neural network feedback the actual examiner's um, results. So he, would, he or she would give the up or down, the relative ranking. And each of the augmented tools that we're providing them actually is just for that examiner. It wouldn't work for another examiner because the feedback is not there. Mm -hmm. So they realize that these tools are really just for them and therefore they're accepting them a lot better. 
So you have to get the customer, in this case the examiner, mm -hmm. on your side, and you've got to show them this is really for them. And it has to be sincere. It can't just be, yeah, we're going to show you this and then eliminate you. We're going right. to you know, knock you out. No. We're actually giving you the ability to do this better, cheaper, and faster because as an um, agency, we're fee-funded. So I take no taxpayer funds whatsoever. It's all about the fees. And I have a fiduciary then to the applicants and the fee payers who also do this over time, right? You're paying for that trademark. You're paying for that patent over time. I have a, a, a responsibility to ensure that it's maximized for your benefit. How did you involve, for example, the examiners in that process up front so they knew all of that? It didn't just show up one day and they go, oh, okay, I guess this is gonna be okay. And they were worrying, worrying, worrying up until that point. I imagine you were in front of that and, and I wonder how you did that. We had those workshops, the iterative rapid prototyping, mm -hmm. and we included a number of examiners who were high speed, who were like, we really need to do this. They're the ones with the loudest voice. Yeah. And remember, you gotta get the ones with the loud voice so that they can then project it for you. Yeah. But once that occurred, and once we got the feedback, we also included others. We have art units. There's about 3,600 different art units within the PTO and we're just getting them trained up on all the different things and including them in the feedback loops. Mm -hmm. What will you do to perpetuate that? Because this doesn't sound like a destination. This sounds like this is an ongoing evolution that you'll continue. It's really hard to get that type of philosophy ingrained in your design. Mm. And so that evergreen concept, I say, look, I don't want to put and deploy anything into production that I can't rip out in three years. And if I'm going to buy something from a vendor, you got to show me how I can export my data before I ever put it in. Mm -hmm. And if you have that type of relationship, then everybody's on their toes because the competition is good and you realize everything is only for a certain amount of time. You can only optimize for this amount of time. And a lot of people in the government say, well, that's crazy. It takes too long on procurement. That's why we have to change procurement. It is mm -hmm. just a terrible fiasco. If anything goes longer than three years, you're, you're done for. Yeah. It's crazy. How do you go about analyzing a particular um, mission objective to determine this is something that automation can apply to? This is something that will be useful that, uh, for this technology. I imagine you're not going around going, we have some automation tools, let's stick them on something. No, that's a hammer looking for the nail. Yeah, that's right. And so the fact is, when you look, to challenge the status quo in that culture change is really what I'm trying to go after. Mm -hmm. And I learned in the Army, by the way, happy birthday Army, HUA, defending the free world since 1775. And by the way, you Army, I'm sorry, you Air Force guys, remember, Army Air Corps. Just saying. Now, come on, don't pick on people. This is not the time you for that. You just gotta remember your grandfather. This and make is sure not you... the time for that, Jamie. <laughs> All right. So Back uh, on task, please. Yeah, right on task, you got it. Um, where were we? <laughs> you, were, you were just changing the status quo a few moments yes. ago. So in order to challenge that, in the Army you use SOPs, but the standard operating procedures and your checklist, just like on a flight checklist as well, they're for people who don't know what they're doing, right? Think now, about you it. just, you keep doing that. Go ahead, status quo. So if you check off 10 and you keep doing the same thing over and over again, don't you have enough 
understanding and experience to say, well, look, I just do it this way. And maybe I can take steps four, five, and six and automate them. Mm -hmm. And so I'm encouraging that faster and cheaper way because if people bring that to me, then whatever budget they save this year, they can use next year in their investments. Mm -hmm. And I know it's a unique thing, but if we budgeted that way, live within your means, and whatever you save this year, you can invest next year. It's a great incentive for people to do those efficiency, and UiPath is fantastic in the backlog of things. If you have a huge backlog, you're gonna have to have surge, um, some type of surge process in order to uh, uh, address and process that backlog. Mm -hmm. So we've done that with the trademark issues and UiPath. So it's been a great thing to help us take care of the rote procedures, the clerical, the admin, such that we don't have to waste our uh, human capital on such mundane tasks. Jamie Holcomb, the CIO at the Patent and Trademark Office. There is much more of that conversation, and you can find a link to it to watch the uh, whole video in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast is back tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.